This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. Today we're looking at how to fall in love with your job again. Daniel was the producer of this week's podcast. Daniel, how do you fall in love with your job again? Well, I should say, just to start off, that on the podcast, we've got Bruce Daisley. Now, Bruce is the VP of Europe for the company known as Twitter. You guys might know them. Um, And Bruce has a new book out called The Joy of Work. So we put him in conversation with Jamie Bartlett, who's one of our favorite interviewers to use. He's a great tech journalist. And they discussed re-envisioning and reimagining the world of work today, how to start falling in love with your job again. And hopefully the episode has some real practical takeaways so that our listeners can learn to love their jobs again. And that's if, if, you, don't, if you don't already. Obviously, we love our jobs. Absolutely, of course. Let's go straight to the discussion now. Hello, I'm Jamie Bartlett. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates and podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Right, well, I, I want to start, actually, with the state of work generally. I, I was amazed when I, when I picked up the book, and one of the first uh, statistics that jumped out at me was just how many people are not engaged in their job at the moment. I mean, I think it was 8% only of British workers yeah. are, are engaged. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So when you look at those stats, I think 24% of American workers are engaged. And so normally you read the global report and you laugh at the 24% and then you get to 8% for the UK and you think, right, there's something going wrong here. No, but um, really badly wrong. I mean, yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this is a surprisingly yeah. low. Well, in that research as well, I think 17%, so twice as many as the, as the people who are engaged, 17% are actively disengaged. And by that, they're sort of, you know, they're in a counterculture against their bosses. So, yeah, it's a, it's a crisis of, of people feeling disconnected from the job they're doing. Yeah, we have, it seems, millions of people who are just miserable in their work. How did we get to this point? It's a really strange thing as well, isn't it? Because, like, you know, if, for example, you know, a book like this, styled as a workbook, immediately people, even though they spend most of their waking hours at work, it becomes, you know, the, the notion of thinking about the mechanics of work and satisfaction from work seem to be something that, you know, people who maybe find themselves trawling the the business book section at WH Smith's might do, but but very few of us um, find ourselves doing it. I think largely... You know, some of the cultural initiatives are, are to blame as as much as anything. Workplaces where the demands upon people are going up. I think probably to contextualise the reason why this has got worse in the last few years is that the average working day has gone up by about 25% by the arrival of email on people's phones. So people are just working longer. And the end result of that is that if you don't see any return for what you're doing, if you don't see any satisfaction for what you're doing, gradually there's a... It's sort of just a, a an eroding burnout that happens as a result of work. And so we've, we often find ourselves, I think, you know, one of the stats is that half of all office workers are in a state of burnout, some degree of burnout. And people are in a situation... Well, sorry, but what does burnout mean? Yeah, so, you know, I asked experts on that. And that's just where your energy and your applica- application to do something are... And it's a form of depression, really. You just don't have the application to to set about doing something. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times a couple of weekends ago talking about burnout amongst millennials. And what it said is that most, and I know millennials is an unhelpful term, but but the journalist from a subjective perspective said that most millennials are finding that because the modern state of existence now is we're expected to be working all the time when it comes to their own personal time their own leisure time they just don't have the 
energy to to set about doing anything with any conviction. So I think that's one of the manifestations of burnout. People just feeling unable to process things that are significant, whether it's part of their job or whether it's outside of their job. So there's been other books in the past about work and there's there's, a lot of different management theory books about how to run an agile office or we see these coming out. What what do you think has been missing in, in those books that has meant that things, as you say, have kind of got worse over yeah. the last few years? I think, you know, one of the things that you generally find in workbooks is that these uh, an obsession with the, the sort of the big pillars of work. So whether it is, you know, the great book by Daniel Pink, Drive, which is all about what are the motivating factors at work. And he talks about purpose, autonomy and mastery. And the, a lot of the books that have followed in his wake have really gone big on that purpose. So Simon Sinek's Why is all really about purpose. Why are we doing that job? And I think the perspective I took, certainly having worked in big purpose-driven organisations, you know, Google hammers into every worker who works there that, you know, we're doing this to transform the global, the global economy and just how information is, is owned, really. You know, this, this clear purpose. Twitter has a really clear purpose. And what it was clear to me was that purpose alone does not get you to Friday. You know, purpose alone actually can, in the, in the same way that um, there's, there's a Steve Jobs quote, and the, you've got to love what you do. And I think it came from his commencement speech that he, he gave a quotation, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And it becomes sort of fridge magnet, magnet philosophy where people say that. And firstly, the burden upon people to love what they do is, is actually unreasonable. Um, it, it, the, the expectation upon people is, what if you don't love what you do, somehow are you inadequate? It's an unreasonable expectation. But also what you find in those purpose-led organisations is either people can feel this dissonance between I'm told that I should have a sense of purpose about what I'm doing and I feel empty, I feel exhausted and I feel broken. And so, sounds I, like you're describing me almost to a T there. So. <laughs> I think we can all access it, right? Yeah, and, and, completely. We've all had jobs where we felt we felt like that. Yeah, and especially then that dissonance when you know, candidly, my first hand my first hand experience working at Twitter a couple of years ago. I've loved my time at Twitter, and I I adore it now. But a couple of years ago, it was especially bad. And I think you know, when you're beset with press articles and you're beset with you know the circumstance that you're working in, it can be really difficult. And you know, let me tell you that purpose doesn't get you up in the morning when you're feeling broken, estranged from from the reason why you're doing it. So that was why I was interested. And, and I think the critical for me, thing for me was was trying to peel back the layers. Why is it that we we enjoy work? You know, work is a bit like school in the sense that we feel embarrassed admitting that we love work at times. You might you might casually say it to a trusted partner or close friend but you wouldn't broadcast that you love your job to a lot of people because we sort of feel embarrassed it feels either like peacocking or or unnecessary oversharing and so I was interested what are the circumstances when we can actually enjoy our job and and what's the rate yeah well you've actually sort of I suppose the other thing about this book that that strikes me immediately is that it's 30 sort of short chapters you've obviously written this as a something that people can take some practical particular we're going to come to some of yeah. the specifics in a minute but i mean i'd like to know sort of who you really think this book is yeah. is for and what problem yeah you think I, it's I saw overcoming. i sort of see it as a troublemaker's manifesto but in a in a um approachable way so I, the reason why i did it in 30 stages is that if if you accept the context that I've sort of outlined there, the almost dystopian take on what work actually looks like now, then people are in a state of exhaustion. So the idea of, you know, you bestow this tome of wisdom upon them, that if they reach the final page, everything clicks into place, <laughs> just doesn't bear, it just it doesn't match up with that reality. So my take was, okay, if people are in a state of personal exhaustion, they want to firstly reduce the toll upon themselves. But secondly, um, my my perspective is that often cultures exist despite bosses or they dis- they exist alongside you know corporate philosophy and so if you can start changing your own personal team culture your team dynamic then you can enjoy your job again so it's not necessarily that a ceo is going to read this and say right this is our new philosophy but more 
maybe you're, you know, the outspoken member of a team or you're the person who thinks about the the meeting dynamic of the meeting you go to. And by a little bit of science and a sort of 10-page inter- intervention, you could improve work by 3%. Your your take from work is that you can improve it a little bit. So that's why, that's why I say Troublemakers Manifesto. It's like if someone... Most of us find ourselves, the modern state of work, back to that engagement thing you mentioned, most of us find ourselves like the little boy in the Emperor's New Clothes where we're looking around and we're asking ourselves, does no one else notice that these meetings are uh, horrendous? You know, and you come out of the meeting and you say to people, what do you think? And they all say, yeah, good meeting. And so we all find ourselves as the boy in that fable thinking, actually, maybe I'm the only one who thinks things are broken around here. And so my take was, if that's your start point, that you think, you know, work used to be more fun than this. There used to be more pleasure and more, there used to be sort of a a better kinetic energy in in the teams I was in. But you're not quite sure why, then hopefully this will give you some science to, to lead your path, really. Right. I'm going to come to the science and the specifics in a moment. But just before that, I'd like to know a little bit about you. You've got quite a, an unusual, back, I suppose, an unusual background for someone that's now vice president at, yeah. at, at Twitter. Yeah. You've got quite a normal background, sort of humble background. And I heard a story about um, you writing CVs into places, which interested me. Yeah. So um, quite often when I go and talk in schools, the thing I caution the kids is that, you know, we all follow a path that seems straightforward and it's only in, if you sort of were able to see everyone else, you realise how identically. So most kids will at some point hear about curriculum vitae and they'll go to the web and they'll search and they'll go to the first link and they'll download a beautiful looking template and they'll fill it in and they apply for a job. And what they miss is every other single candidate has done exactly the same. And so, you know, when it comes to... When it comes to the outcome of that, the people who've got the network are, are going to get a far better advantage than the people who don't have a network. And I was in that situation, grew up in a council estate in Birmingham, which, you know, actually I, I think is far more the normal order of things than probably metropolitan people like ourselves now would say. But um, grew up in a council estate in Birmingham, went to university, first person in my family to go to university, and came back and spent, you know, 12 months unemployed or 12 months doing sort of bar work in Birmingham, trying to get a job in, well, I didn't know what jobs there were, you know, one of the failings. I tried to get a job in record companies. And what I found was that I was sending these letters on increasingly fluorescent paper to try and get some attention. And it was only when, extrapolating that, I drew a cartoon CV of my life that I suddenly went from getting no responses. You, you drew a cartoon CV? What do you, how do you, how so, do you so do that? So imagine my take as a, as one of the most... Uh, as a Marvel comic. So, you know, four pages of my life rendered as Spider-Man cartoons. Okay. Now, you, now you've got to accept that I'm... I'm imagining it. Yeah. I'm I, trying to imagine yeah, it. You've got to accept that I am no, <laughs> probably a little bit more like the Beano than Marvel. So, you know, a sort of <coughs> um, kid's comic book, my life as abbreviated as it was at the age of 21, 22, my life told in the manner of a Beano cartoon. Um, and what I always say to people, I always say, look, as, as my fortunately elevated job in Twitter, I get zero letters. Actually, I do. I get about two letters from disgruntled Twitter users a week. and But generally, I get no post. And I suspect the boss of Google's the same, the boss of Snapchat's the same, the boss of the BBC probably is the same. And so if kids are trying to get attention, then far better than trying to beg an uncle or an auntie would be to try and, you know, create something interesting and alluring about themselves. Well, especially if you don't have an auntie or an exactly. uncle in a good, in a good exactly. job that can help you get networked. So you started sending off dr- cartoon CVs yeah. to employees and they oh, they actually responded, I yeah, guess. Yeah, no, so I, I got immediately... Got, just sitting here having yeah, yeah, a great that's right. book. So. But definitely that, it, it changed, my, changed my career. So I got a job offer in a record company... That was conditional on me passing my driving test, and unfortunately, I failed my driving test. So, <laughs> so, um, so I, I actually didn't get a job in a record company, but I did get a job in Capital Radio. So, the cartoon CV got me a lot. So, it sort of changed my life. I, I'm never one of those people to look backwards, and, and which is maybe sort of a, a luxury of, of privilege. But you know, um, the 
but you know that definitely that that got me off my council estate. And so the lesson is for people who are because there's a lot. I was in the same position as yeah. you at that age, and sending off thousands of CVs, nothing seemed to be. No one replied. You've got right. to try and think of That's something right. different. So people can send letters to you. You know, feel free to give them your address. Yeah. right now they can send <laughs> letters into you at Twitter. And yeah, and what I say is like occasionally I do get like you know once every two years I'll get a letter, but it'll be ri- it'll be scrawled on a bit of spiral bound paper that's ripped out, and you know, truly. Yeah, you've found the right means of distribution in modern days, sort of going by Her Majesty's Mail. uh, It's a far better way to to do it. But you've got to make it, you've got to give a good account of yourself as well, I think. I always, I I get it, you know, people on LinkedIn will hit me up and there'll be people who in some way are well connected and, and they'll say, oh, can my son or daughter come in and do work experience there? And I always say, look, the strongest advice I can give to you is ask your son and daughter to write to me. But I'm not gonna, which makes for awkward conversations. But I always say I'm not gonna, hmm. I'm not gonna do it. I, I hate nepotism. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm the same, and I, I probably would answer a letter actually because I get them so rarely, yeah. much more likely than an email. But um... and especially, I tell you what, if, if someone has been interesting or amusing, what happened to me with the cartoon CV is they said to me at Capital Radio, they said. You know, we've interviewed a lot of people here and you're probably in the bottom one or two of the people we interviewed. You know, you're t- <laughs> well, that's, that's I know. a nice start. I know. <laughs> but then you so you look at it. I was never top of my class in anything. I was like one of the bottom people in an interview because I just didn't know. Um, but they said your cartoon CV had gone around the office and people were rooting for you before you stepped into the room. And so that's what I think. You know, Jamie, if you've got a letter and it's like someone has maybe investigated you and got you right and you know they've, they've given you some reason you end up rooting for that person so that's that was my take uh an early viral you round that office so um one of the things i really enjoyed about this book was how much science there is in it how many studies there are i mean an awful lot of academic studies that you've obviously collated some of which aren't actually to do with work at all but more about human nature i wonder if you could just sort of Briefly summarise the state of play of the, of the science of work. Yeah. So I, I go through probably the start of the book, I go through ways to feel less exor- exhausted. So to put that on hold, you know, and that is people turning notifications off on their phone can just reduce the, the, that, that sort of pull at your sleeve of, of technology. But um, probably the stuff that I'm most compelled by and most fascinated by myself is into the science of the importance of belonging for human beings and you know that that when you explore the science of belonging belonging and and feeling like you fit in with a group of people isn't a nice to have it's it's actually an essential quality of being of 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 human existence really and and as soon as you identify that then you realize that especially in the last 15 years since electronic communication was meant to transform the way that we work actually most of the advances have been at the expense of human connection and and human sense of belonging and so the thing i was most compelled by i set about exploring this with no sense of um objective of finding out certain things but the thing i was fascinated by is trying i i was presented with the fact that a number of the ways that we we configure work right now are um against the way that scientists have explored and found things. So then I just wanted to find all of that evidence and, and lay it down. So give me an example of yeah. where the science doesn't match what we actually do in yeah. the office. So by w- without thinking and w- without design, we unlike the iPhone, work has never been de- designed. We've 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 gradually evolved using the technology available. And so the way that that looks then for most most British people now spend 16 hours a week in meetings. Now, if you look at the output of meetings, they tend to be incredibly low. You know, probably one of the, the best people who's who's set about trying to do it, the equivalent of sort of those... Um, there's, when you watch a tennis match, you can watch where the ball is distributed or, you know, they, they show you these, these visualisations. Or when you watch a football match, they show you where players have run. But in fact, even though we spend all our waking hours in work, no one had ever done that sort of analysis on work. And one professor... Sandy Pentland from Massachusetts Institute of Technology set about doing that. And what he found was when you look at what actually happens, that distribution of energy in offices, 
Meetings account for about 2% of what's accomplished. Emails account for about 2% of what's accomplished. So when you look at the, the dynamics of what goes on in a workplace, it tends to suggest that the things that we've sleepwalked into, 14 to 16 hours a week of meetings, are at the enemy of output. You know, Britain right now is in a productivity crisis. Productivity hasn't really gone up in the last few years. And yet we're working longer than ever before. Uh, Britain's far more exposed to the service industry than than other countries, which might be one of the reasons why office work is is sort of the, the norm here compared to other countries. And so we the science suggests we've got to stop this ever expansion of meetings and this ever ever increasing number of emails. Um, and yet most workplaces find themselves in a position where the ease of arranging meetings is is so easy that, that they're expanding and they're Why? Increasing. Why do we have so many meetings? I mean, at some point, surely offices and, and managers especially realise that this is a waste of time. And like you said, a lot of people come out of meetings and sort of nod to each other. That was pointless, wasn't yeah. it? But we still carry on doing yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people who appraise... Um, technology and the impact of technology at a generational level at a sort of as a, a, a bigger they take a step back they say what we're doing right now is very similar to when the electric motor replaced the steam engine in that the first thing that you do when uh, those technological changes happen is you try and do what you were doing before but we but with the new technology and what the the the, mo- the electric motor allowed was minimisa- minimisation. You, you didn't need big halls full of steam engines. You, you were allowed to have tiny little interventions. It, it transformed it. And they're saying that um, people like Cal Newport, who has written Deep Work, he's got a new book coming out called Digital Minimalism. He says, I think that we'll take a step back and we'll say the way that we've configured work right now uh, we were in an interim period where we hadn't changed the way we were working. We'd just adapt to new technology. Mm. So, so I think, you know, for me, the, the best people who've looked at this, uh, there's a wonderful researcher called Teresa Amable, and, and she's sort of uh, a Harvard Business School professor, but started off as a psychologist. And she explored and she found, she concluded exactly what we would all say, that a good day at work is when we make progress in something meaningful. And as soon as you recognise that, you go, okay, probably 75,000 diary entries told us something we already knew. But the way we configure modern work is the enemy of progress. You know, we, 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 we fill our day with meetings. In fact, if you look at someone else's me, um, if you look at someone else's calendar now and you see they don't have a meeting all day, your first instinct is to, <laughs> is to remark on how indolent they are. They're not doing anything. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know that's true. Um... I've got something here for you, actually. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any string, but I really enjoyed one of your studies that you cited, and I was hoping you'd just explain it to us. Can Maybe people can just hear this rustling noise. Got some spaghetti. So you've put some, some marshmallows. marshmallows. Feel free to have one, by the way. And I've even got some tape. Okay. I was... We I need was the string. stunned by this. I okay. was absolutely stunned. Maybe you can just um, okay. explain what I'm pulling out of my bag and why. So the marshmallow uh, challenge. Marshmallows feature twice in psychology. They, they feature in the marshmallow test, which is that um, which is that exercise where you give a child a marshmallow and you, you tell them to wait three minutes. They can have two marshmallows. Uh, delayed gratification. That's right. It? And I, I think they say by extrapolation, it predicts, you know, Children's outcome in, in adulthood, you know, if you can delay gratification, it seems to be a good signal. But this is the marshmallow challenge. So the marshmallow challenge is you're given um, 18 minutes, a it might be 12 pieces of dry spaghetti, um, a marshmallow, 18 pieces, 12 pieces of dry spaghetti, about a metre of sellotape and a metre of string. And you're told in a team to build the biggest construction you can. And it's very difficult just looking at the dried spaghetti yeah, in the so market. I can't even it? think of how you'd yeah how you'd do it. Here's what they find with it: the um, so the so the very best people performing at this exercise are structural engineers, and I think it's fair to say <laughs> we'll remove them from the equation. But then, if you look at that exercise, the best performing groups are preschool age kids, and the worst performing groups are many MBA students. 
<laughs> and uh, and the reason why, and it's sort of a fascinating thing. There's a there's a great TED talk on it by a guy who set it up. Uh, you should, don't investigate too much the TED talk before you test it out. But um, but the the reason why is what happens with preschool kids is that they don't do what most of us do in meetings, which is status management. So most of us most of us in meetings find ourselves trying to say something that sounds good to the boss, or say something which. Um, is in service of protecting hierarchy, either elevating us in a hierarchy if we're low status or just keeping quiet if we've got nothing to say. But most of what goes on in meetings is actually sort of, it's it's social grooming, it's, it's just performance really. And so what they found with the marshmallow challenge was that kids don't do any of that. Kids just get on with the exercise. So actually they say that Kids, because they don't have the words to, to describe what they're trying to do, it's incredibly nonverbal. They just start testing things out. The MBA students, on the other hand, spend a lot of time trying to be the person identified as the creator of the winning strategy. They try and jostle uh, for power and they, they sort of try and position themselves as the person who came up with the, the, the massive insight that was transformational. And so it's just an interesting reminder that firstly, you know, when you study that exercise and you say, so preschool kids are doing better than people who are meant to be the experts. It's just a good reminder to really appraise what meetings are. So, you know, if you're spending those 16 hours a week in meetings, are these meetings just in service of connecting us to, is it just about positioning? Do we really need these things? Mm. And so, you know, that's why I think the marshmallow challenge can be sort of instructive of what's really going on. Well, feel free to help yourself to a marshmallow <laughs> now I've brought them in. The, so that brings me on to some of the examples because I suppose in some books like this, it's easy to think, well, this is a, this is, these are all really useful things, but they're especially useful for people in certain types of jobs, jobs like mine, jobs like yours, where we have a lot of agency, we can change things in our workplace and i've got a little uh, i've got a little test for you okay here. got a little test for you so you've got 30 specific lessons in this book and i want you to give me one for each of the following okay. five types of work these are the top um the most common jobs that people actually have in the uk okay so this isn't this isn't people working in the tech sector yeah. the number one job in the uk with over a million people is Retail and sales assistants, so people in shops. People like you when you're working or when you nearly worked for a record store, for example, what should they do? Yeah, so um, what you find with – so retail, I I, – in the course of doing a a, a podcast and in the course of um, talking – to leading experts. There's a woman called Zeynep Tan who's an inspiration actually because her she set about finding the value of purpose in retail jobs. So the, the value is sort of a, a sense of, of why you're doing it. And what she found was that companies that had a good working environment, a good culture, were twice as profitable as the, those who weren't. And, you know, the, the one thing that's really clear about that, why, why we work... A good example is that people who <coughs> um, make food, people in the food preparation industry, if they can see the customers they're creating food for, um, the quality of their food goes up by about 15%. When people can see why they're doing something, then the quality of their food goes up. <coughs> and retail's exactly the same. If you permit those people to have a degree of autonomy, you allow them to be in service of the customer, they they tend to re- respond incredibly well to it. So, you know, bringing purpose to those people can can be really important. Back to what I said before, is if people are exhausted, then that purpose is inaccessible. So so that, you know, if people just feel one of the things in retail... It's a bit vague retail, though, Bruce. Okay, so bringing what, purpose, okay. have you got something a bit yeah. more specific? So, so what you find in retail is that one of the... Um, these various elements of job design. So if you don't... I, I was looking at Glassdoor yesterday. It's sort of the place where people review their workplaces. And quite often in retail locations, the thing that upsets those people is if they don't get the rotors until the week of, of they're doing their jobs. So the good jobs uh, in retail normally give you a rotor three months before and give you an app so you can swap shifts with people. So, you know, you need to get, it's the sort of story of the book, you need to get the hygiene of jobs, the job design part, out of the way. But then if you if you say to people, 
Um, most of us find that when we f- we can see the beneficiaries of the job we're doing, it, it it has the end result that we do the job more effectively. And so what you find with retail stores is if you can do that, if people come into retail stores and they they ask for something, the retail firms need to create a set of rules. Does the person walk with you to the shelves or do they point? And it's a decision, actually, that, that those companies make as a strategy. You know, so there's some places where, where they'll walk you there. And, and it's about as long as you get those hygiene things out of the way, people can find retail jobs immensely satisfying. OK. Second job is uh, office administrators. Office admin, admin yeah. assistants. Yeah, you know, um, what, you, what you find in big bureaucracies is uh, where all jobs have autonomy taken from them. So uh, probably the, the organisations that seem to have grown big but have protected autonomy, uh, autonomy, Amazon being one of them. You know, what you find in Amazon, a lot of people have um, a given licence to, to make local decisions, to get on with things. Netflix did something... I don't necessarily admire the, the the Netflix culture, but one of the things that Netflix said was they said you're either big, um, or b- big and bureaucratic, or small and nimble. And they said we want to be big and nimble, and so consequently, Netflix you, uh, the the rules that Netflix have are you know the expenses policy is do what's do what you think is in service of Netflix. I saw that Ford introduced a dress code, and the dress code for Ford used to be 16 pages, and it became, under their chief executive, it was GM actually, their dress code became uh, dress appropriately. And so office administrators, if you can give an office administrator the autonomy to do their job, where autonomy means like the ability that your decisions will stick you tell them what their job is and you tell them they can make those decisions and that job can be immensely satisfying. But the challenge of mo- most of modern work is that we get removed from autonomy. You know, we're making a decision, but we know head office might uh, overrule it. We're making a decision and, you know, we're not convinced our boss will ale- allow it to stick. And what you, you do in that situation is you infantilize adults and you, you end up with an, a net result where people are just playing mum and dad. We're, we're pretending to drive the car, but we're not driving the car. It's a steering wheel in the back seat. And so, yes, I think the more you can say about an office administrator, let's give that person responsibility that they can make decisions. And some of those decisions, you know, there'll be a, a nominal check and balance on, but they'll just be allowed to do them. And I think that's the thing. If you can come to work and think, I am going to make decisions today that... I am happy with, I'm convinced I'm doing a good job. Work can be incredibly rewarding. Okay, I'll give you one more. I won't go through all five. But the third most common job in the UK, uh, about three quarters of a million people, is care workers. What what sort of things can they take from this book? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, well, firstly, people in compassionate jobs see more burnout than than other jobs. It's it's an immensely demanding uh, profession to be in. And and in fact, you know, um, I adored last year, um, This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay. I don't know if you read his memoir of being a junior doctor. And I think the, the reason why that book is so powerful is that it's immensely funny, but he really illustrates at first hand the emotional burden of people who are in those emotionally taxing jobs. I think, you know, the first thing that that's really clear is that if you're in emotionally taxing jobs with no barriers between life, work life and home life, then the end result is you feel like you're you're constantly working. You feel like you're constantly on call. And f- so for me, the importance of, you know, the things I put in there, the importance of taking breaks, the importance of sleeping, the importance of trying to get punctuations from when you're working and when you're not working actually are in service to make you feel like the times when you are focused on your job, um, you're getting more from it. So I think, you know, it's creating a greater separation between home life and and that emotionally taxing life. Now, we're going to stop for a moment, maybe have a marshmallow. Okay, I'm vegetarian, unfortunately. (laughs) The the weird things. (laughs) (laughs) All right, actually, I'm going to give you a bonus extra one, which is our Brexit negotiation team. 
I mean, they're probably doing one of the toughest jobs in the UK at the moment. I imagine pretty long hours, very stressful, very difficult. You got any advice that might help them? So the one of the things that you find is that normally being in a state of positive effect is in service of doing a good job. So, um, so that is where scientists say if you're in a good mood, and it it doesn't have to be like this sort of you know fizzy effervescence, but if you're in a good mood, you're your sense of collegiality, your your sense of creativity is improved. The only job that's an exception to that is negotiator. A good negotiator often is in, is in a state of dissatisfaction is and unhappiness. So? So that's true. That's the only job where um, generally psychologists say it's better to be slightly unhappy. Um, so if you've got any drains in the office, moving them to negotiation. I have to say, though, you know, um, work. I think one of the challenges of modern work is that, unfortunately, the poster leaders, can you say poster boys, but, but poster child of um, of modern work, are people like Elon Musk who, you know, celebrate working 80 hours a week. And I think the thing that's really clear is that most of us, even when we did work 80 hours a week, maybe at university when we're, we're on deadline, it's normally 80 hours a week and then followed by lots of sleep. Um, anyone work burning the midnight hour, the oil continuously, normally it, it has a toll to it. And so it puts you in a bad state. So I would say Brexit negotiators, well, you probably should have started a bit earlier and um, pr- making sure that you don't work 80-hour uh, weeks. Uh, certainly the, one of the things that you notice is Stress kills our capacity to be creative. And most negotiation jobs are about think, creatively thinking of variables. So, you know, managing a short working week is a good idea. One idea that I'd not come across before was uh, hurry sickness. But it did strike a chord with me. Could you explain that? Yeah, hurry sickness is this perpetual thing that I think all of us, especially in eras, the era of constant connectivity, is we find ourselves with a constant undertaste of adrenaline in everything that we're doing, you know. So so hurry sickness, probably the best way to observe it is if you get into a lift, you press the floor button and then you immediately press it again or you press closed door and, you you know, you're constantly in a state where you want to do things quicker. A good example of hurry sickness is the sense of delight when the train door just closed immediately behind you, like you haven't wasted any seconds (laughs) at all. You arrive for a flight just as the the flight, you're the last person onto a flight. Constant sense that you're squeaking any, every spare moment out of things. And while getting everything out of our lives is important, and I think um, it's, it's at the expense that we're squeezing out the moments where we're we're most creative. So if if you look into the systems in the brain, and the unfortunate thing about systems in the brain is almost every neuroscientist tries to create their own categorizations. But the most common ones, the ones they teach in neuroscience, um, there's three systems in the brain: the executive attention network, that doing stuff, the salience network, which is sort of running background checks that everything's okay, and the default network. And the only way that neuroscientists can observe the default network is they give you something to do. They might load you into a brain scanner and give you a Rubik's Cube. And the moment you stop doing the Rubik's Cube, that's when the default network kicks in. But the strange thing about the default network is it's when most of our ideas happen. So if anyone's found themselves saying, you know, I had a good idea while I was in the shower. I had a good idea while I was just sitting in a chair waiting for someone. That's because the default network is a, a time when often ideas are sort of are being exchanged and, and moved around. Thoughts are being uh, transferred around your brain. And so that's often when ideas strike us. Um, and so the default network is immensely powerful. Hurry sickness is at the expense of that. You know, if you find you're unable to get onto a train and without pulling your phone out of your pocket. If you're in a queue somewhere and you immediately look at your phone, um, look, you know, I recognise that my day job is in service of those I was holding off. I was about to say, I mean, do you ever feel like (laughs) modern technology is in some ways partly responsible for, I feel like I suffer from hurry sickness. I mean, how do you square that with with your day job at Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. I I think firstly that everyone, the, the average Twitter user... We don't really use the word "use." We use the word "customer." But the average, the average you know? person on oh, Twitter. Okay. I tell you why, because um, <laughs> the using the word "user" generally uh, dehumanizes. They, they just become numbers. We've Is got it customer worse though. 
I, there's no good word for it, though, is there? No. This is where, like, languages like yeah. French, where they've got a, a bureau that invents new words. We maybe need that. But, yeah, that's right. Customers sort of sticks in the throat a bit, doesn't it? Um, yeah, but, uh, but the average Twitter person um, uses it for less than 10 minutes a day. So, so while some of us are more addicted than others, um, it, it tends to be that people use Twitter to punctuate, to, to get updates on... Brexit or on the football or, or the TV show that we're watching. Well, you seem like a good person to advise on how we, how we cure our hurry sickness in a world where we are surrounded by beeps and distractions and pings all the time, whether it's our choice or a sort of feeling of being addicted to these things. How, what's the, I mean, everyone probably have their own way, but what do you think is a, from the research is a, is a good way of making sure you have that time and opportunity to, to think more deeply about things? Yeah, I, I mean, to my mind, you know, I I think the probably the foundation of all happiness um, is, and the foundation of sort of a good balance is is sleep, and so you know what, you construct everything upon upon that, um, and so you know once you've got the sort of the, the basis of sleep, I think you can you can start looking at other things. One of the things that I think w- is a good reminder of the the power of getting balance with with digital devices is that. A lot of people are increasingly talking about um, attention residue. And attention residue is that whatever app it is that you've got open, if you're flicking between that app and a meeting that you're in and a conversation that you're having in a TV show, is that while we, we might celebrate the idea of multitasking, multitasking from a, a cognitive point of view doesn't really exist. It's, it's just rapid switching, but it leaves... It leaves a residue, it leaves an aftertaste in whatever you start doing. And and we all find it, you know, you're in a meeting, you think you're just checking your email, you come back to hearing what people are talking about and you're not really following it. And I think, you know, the, the more that we can get a sense of um, doing one thing with focus, it actually makes work and life more satisfying and you'll be astonished at how much you can accomplish. So one of the things I talk about is this, the idea of a monk mode morning, you know, putting an hour aside twice a week where you, with no interruptions, with no distractions, with no social media or email, you just try and get a couple of things done. And, you know, people like yourself who've written will know that the power of removing yourself from distractions, you can accomplish far more than you probably expect. I want this to be a bit of a rapid fire round. So I'm just going to okay. I'm going to throw out some of the, the the big questions that I think people have when they're working, especially in offices. And I just want you to give that one sentence answer. Yeah, is it a good idea to have head to wear headphones in your office? Uh, I think once you accept that open plan offices are now the norm and the the financial imperative means we'll never go back, then wearing headphones is a coping mechanism. Now, they are at the expense of conversation and conversation is the number one driver of office productivity. So you need to get a balance. So my philosophy, and I talk about it, is permitting headphones at certain times and agreeing amongst teams of times when you don't allow them. All right. Well, then open plan, as you just mentioned, is an open plan office actually good? For productivity. You know, what, what you end up finding with open plan is that the the thing that was promised to us, it's a bit like the sort of the advent of any new technology. The thing that we excitedly promised was more interactions, more conversations, more and what you tend to what you find, the evidence is unequivocal. People end up hating their colleagues when they're in open plan offices. <laughs> <laughs> do you have an open plan office? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. So you hate each other? Yeah, I mean look, you know, so I think <laughs> I think that modern work will look like a mixed economy where you have quiet spaces where, you know, laptops are going to be more ubiquitous even than they are now, where people can go and remove themselves and put themselves in a tiny little booth, a phone booth and work. Working from home. Unfortunately, the science from working from home isn't fantastic, but there are ways to get benefits from it. With it. Do so, you mean, sorry, do you mean the quality of the scientific th- research isn't that good? Or no, the- no, 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 no. The science is good, but it it says that working from home normally is more stressful for the people who do it. So uh, people who work from home are often f- almost 50, 60 percent more anxious about what everyone thinks about them. They think their boss thinks that they're not working hard. The end result of that is they're more stressed. In addition, if you look at people working together, when they're co-located, they chat about 30 times a week if they're working on a project. If they're remotely located, they chat about eight times a week. And normally those, those discussions improve the quality of the work. 
but you can deal with it. If you've got to be remote or you feel the benefit of working remote, then either some face-to-face interaction at the start of a project really helps, or if not that, then making sure you stay in sync with each other. Picking up the phone, often better than video calling, picking up the phone and chatting, often about what might seem like extraneous and, and sort of irrelevant things, sort of human connection can improve the quality of the project. And a meeting, what what does actually make a, a meeting worthwhile? You've already said about many of the problems. So how do you do a meeting that's good? As few people as possible. So, you know, the the the, uh, the secret source of great working is what's called psychological safety. Bit jargony, but it's the ability to speak truth to power. It's the ability to say, back to sort of emperor's new clothes, it's the ability to say, guys, I don't think this is going to work, or I don't think that was very good. It's the secret source of the, the most... Uh, successful and elevated working cultures, but you find that big groups can't achieve it. If you've got, if there were thirty people in a plane cockpit, it would be at the expense that people weren't able to speak up to the pilot. But pilots, you know, airplane cabins have got four or five people in them, and so psychological safety, they can mandate it, they can create rules, and they can build it. And so, um, you know, if you're going to have meetings, keep them small, try and reduce the amount of time. One organisation just. Video records, you know, they record every meeting because normally the the unfortunate thing about meetings is we think the meetings we're not in is when the good stuff happens. All the meeting meetings we're in, we're like, that was awful. That was like life sapping. I feel like I've been held hostage. We're convinced that the meetings we're not in is where the, the intellectual magic, so, yeah. debate, the and so consequently get fewer few people in the meetings as possible. Elon Musk, I think, once said you should just walk out of the meeting if you think it's not useful to you. Would you recommend doing that? Easy for Elon to say that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, one of your uh, this is the final one I'll ask you. It's about uh, stop being a bad boss. I'm just going to quote uh, the, the sentence at the top here. Let's not mince words. There are some people who end up being cultural icons who behave like dickheads. One such person was Steve Jobs. Now, the I, problem is... I, I do give an Jobs, example. Steve Jobs and Elon Musk are very, very successful. I mean, I they've run some of the best, most successful, most profitable companies in the in the world. So... Right. Sometimes being a bad boss might actually be quite good. I know. And good. there's definitely the danger of survivor's bias, isn't there? There's definitely mm. the danger that we look at these people and we the, – the, the, the dangerous lesson is that we look at those people and we believe that somehow – the um, the success of Steve Jobs was based on his rudeness and his brusqueness with people rather than on other things. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like saying, OK, I'm, I'm going to find out the way to be a pop star and the way I'm going to do that, a, a successful musician, I'm going to go and ask Jerry Hallowell from the Spice Girls and she'll say, I worked really hard. And that in its own does not make you a successful pop star. Uh, da- dangerous survivor's bias. Look, the, the thing about Elon Musk and the thing about... Um, some of the patterns of behaviour of Steve Jobs are that I think that they are unhelpful when it comes to our more mundane levels of work ourselves. And look, you know, there's been there's been a trend in in leader lit in the last ten years. It's like all the films we watch right now. They're sort of chosen one narratives. You know, we all we all believe that actually we're the people who back to the marshmallow. Uh, challenge. We all believe that we're the person who's going to come up with that brilliant flash of inspiration, that strategy. And I think, you know, if we can get a bit more balance and be more reasonable about the reason why we're celebrating those people, I think that's that's a, a bit a bit more about uh, getting balance in in the way that we're thinking about things. I just want to to, to to conclude here by opening this up a little bit about the nature of work in general, um, because obviously. How we understand work, it's changing, and it's probably going to change in the future. And you touch on it in various places uh, in the book. And I, I guess um, the first thing is, is there ever a danger, do you think, with books like this, that we, we can miss some of the wider sort of more structural problems? You know, unionisation, good work that people felt, you know, get very well paid to do, good protections, female representation on the board. Is there a risk that... Sort of by looking at specific little things that each person can do to make their job better, you could maybe miss some of the broader problems that we face. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, a, a lot of this is based on um, is based on the notion that we often feel, irrespective of who we are, we often feel powerless in our job, and it adds that sense of helplessness. It adds that sense that 
You know, we might have a job. Look, a good example is most of us, the day we got our job, the day we got a call from a recruiter, we got a letter through the post, we're in a state of elation. And so we're, we're confounded with, what, two, three years on, why do we feel so unhappy? It's sort of like that curse of affluenza. Why do we feel so unhappy in this job that we were convinced was going to be our route to happiness? Um, and so my take is it's sort of the, ma- the microeconomics of work. You're exactly right. It's like microeconomics. What are the short, small interventions that we can all take to improve things? I am certain that there's a macroeconomics of work. And that is, you know, we've got to stop stop putting the excessive demands upon people. You know, work still is constructed in service of a gender bias. You know, um, the way that school terms work still means that, you know, if if a if a couple have children, there's a strong burden and it still societally falls on women to look after um it, to look after sort of kids holidays and so absolutely there is a macroeconomics of work but the challenge for most of us is that that doesn't feel touchable we can't we can't solve that and if we're in a situation where we feel personally like we want to get back to loving what we do um then i think you know my take was uh, on a small measure to try and do that and I suppose that could, once you're in that position and you feel a bit better, right, maybe it, it, it does lead to other broader changes. You, yeah. can, you might feel a bit more confident to lobby for more representation on the boards of, yeah. of, of and, workers or for women or whatever. It, whatever exactly it that. Is. I think, you know, I try and do it in sort of Lego bricks where it starts in an individual, goes to a team and then goes to a company. But I think, you know, there's a danger when anyone starts talking about company culture, back to your engagement stats at the start. A lot of people might find themselves in a big organisation. If someone mandated that the NHS, biggest employer in the world, the NHS's culture is going to change and it it comes down, it gets slapped on posters around the the walls, I guarantee that will be only in service of people putting on a mask at work, people claiming to go on along with that culture because work is only changed when we redesign what someone's day-to-day looks like. And so company culture often... And the company culture movement, often if it's done inexpertly, can after can often be have the end result of making people more unhappy at work rather than than um, than less unhappy. And so that's my take on things. That you know, the, the macroeconomics of of work and company culture and and the whole economy um, is so complex and so sophisticated that probably from a person's subjective point of view it's just inaccessible what about work more generally as an idea you know there's a lot of talk at the moment about great technological disruption that maybe lots of people won't need to work in the future because smart machines will be able to do it for them more and more automation more and more machine learning um i mean how do you think work itself as an idea will evolve in the next few years. Yeah, it's probably one of the, the best-selling books on the theme last year was all about uh, China and AI and, and how things are they're going to grow. And the author of that book um, said that uh, he anticipates by 2033, so I think that's about 15 years, by 2033, uh, 50 to 60% of jobs in the US will be machines will be able to do them. And so we've got a big existential question there, haven't we? Firstly, almost every time that technology has advanced, there've been more jobs created. So we shouldn't be in a Luddite fear of these things. But unless we're looking down the road, I think it will catch up on us far quicker than we think. And the the thing that's clear is that unless we're educating the workforce, unless we're, we're we're taking steps to remove people from exceptionally unskilled jobs they're going to pay the consequence and you know look the 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 minimum universal wage is is one proposed solution i personally can't see that happening i I can't see do you mean the the universal basic income idea idea that everyone gets paid twenty thousand pounds a year yeah to essentially to do nothing if they so wish but they they'll be guaranteed that amount of money yeah do you think that's a good idea um, I, I can definitely see some. I can see some benefit for it if you start looking. If you if you do system thinking and see where we're going to be, then some of these people are displaced. You know, one that one of the the political consequences we're seeing all around us now is that when when 
uh, when the average water level doesn't appear to raise all boats, then there is a fallout from that. So, you know, you can see why it's gained some popularity. I just wonder, you know, it's a sort of bigger discussion, isn't it? But do you think we're ever going to reach the political consensus to make that happen? Well, also, I mean, one of the things that you hope from this book is that if it's done right, people get great joy and satisfaction from their work. Uh, clearly not the case at the moment from those stats yeah. we said at the beginning, but for some people, and if you can do it properly, it's a great source of meaning and purpose in your life. Yeah. And, I, and I wonder whether with something like universal basic income, would, would, would people be satisfied just yeah. to not, not have that sort of structure in their, in their life? Absolutely. Almost certainly they wouldn't. And you would only hope then that the, the non-profits and, and other things filled the gap. Because I think the, the toll, probably the most graphic way you can describe it, is people who don't have a job, um, it, the impact on their health is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of shortening their lifespan. People who don't have a job seem to lose some part of their human mojo and reason for, for going on in comparison to people who do have a job. It's a popular idea in Silicon Valley, isn't it? Well, I mean, some people in Silicon Valley and the big tech companies think that it might be one answer to the sort of coming great transformation of work. But um, Yeah, it's we'll all see. about the challenge of getting from there to there, though, isn't it? Yeah. How do you join those dots that that might be a good outcome, but the baby steps to get from there to there just look too dauntingly complex? Okay, well, what, well just to finish off then... Just to give our uh, listeners something very practical, just, I suppose, one thing that you do, one of the, there's lots of ideas in here, and I think you say, no, you're not expecting anyone to do all of them. That would be quite a task, but take some of them that seem to work for you and try them in your workplace. What's the thing that you do that you found most useful? And one thing that you think everybody everybody could do? Okay, so, so the thing that... Um... So two things there. The, the thing that I think everybody could do, I think everybody could turn notifications off on their phone. I can't believe you're saying that, given you work for Twitter. Yeah, but I think <laughs> what it does is it creates, in the same way that I think every time, if in old money, every time the newspaper published an article, it came, it got shoved through the letterbox, I think you'd start realising the exhausting... Uh, trek to the the doorstep to to pick up those articles was was damaging your ability to concentrate on other things. Look, most people, what you find when you turn notifications off on their phone, and, and the guy who did the work tried to get people to do it for a week, couldn't get enough people to do it for a week, got them to do it for a day, right. and two years later, half of all of them still had notifications turned off. So, so it obviously has. It's it's like an idea that spreads. It's a sticky idea. And what you find with it is it everything becomes more intentional. That yes, now's the time I want to go and check messages. Now's the time I want to go and check social media. Now's the time I want to go and check email. And what you realise pretty quickly is the work, the lies that you tell it works. The lie we tell ourselves, right? But the the lie we tell ourselves about work is I need to check email all the time. If something comes in, uh, I need to to respond to it instantly. And what you realise pretty quickly is if you give it a two hour break, no one feels deeply affronted by that sort of two-hour pause. And so we lie to ourselves. We, we, we convince ourselves work is permeated with guilt. And so we're, we're guilty that we didn't get back quick enough. So do you have, just can I ask, you have them turned off? All of them turned off, everything turned okay. off. Okay, all right. And so, you know, some people say, we're in that research, some people say, I want to leave WhatsApp app turned on or I want to leave, um, I want to leave, um, text message from certain people on. So, you know, almost mm. like there's, a, there's a, a, a sort of safety cord where if your mum is trying to get a hold of you or someone, someone in, important to you is trying to get a hold of you, they've got a, a, a workaround. But yeah, I've got them turned off. And you, tell you what you find, the, the subjective experience of it is you wake up in the morning and even then you sort of open your text messages and your WhatsApps and you go through those and then you often open your social media but I forget to open email and often I'll be sort of walking down the street to work. I've just got a coffee and then I'm suddenly presented with, right, I forgot to check email. And all it gives you is it just gives you some mental headspace where mm. you just, you've got that freedom to, to just think about other things. Um, so that's the, the number one. The one, uh, I forget what your second question directly what was. What you do, what's the one that has really Look, helped you? You know, I think I've been 
reminded the science of laughter. And I think, you know, work has become quite earnest and quite serious. And we believe that if we are, if we're doing a good job, there's no room for laughing and messing around. And the thing that I was really um, just bewitched by was the science about laughter. And laughter not only makes us more creative, we, see, we seem to access more ideas when we're laughing with people, but it's also in service of forging bonds between us. In fact, probably the world's leading laughter scientist, a guy called uh, Professor Robert Provine, said the best way he describes laughter is it's an impoverished human bird song. It's, it's, it's a way that we... He says, often when we laugh together, there's nothing funny that's happened. An outside observer would say that was not amusing. But we laugh and it forges a connection between us. And, you know, if you think most offices increasingly have got people battling their way through 140 emails, they're dashing into meetings that they then sort of feel, they, they, they feel like they're in a hostage uh, situation. Laughter is the one thing that we're squeezing out. And once you identify that laughter creates this secret source, this sort of dark matter of human connection, then actually saying to yourself, I'm going to optimise our working environment to make sure these moments where we laugh is actually, not only is it good scientifically, but it feels just really enriching. Bruce, the book is uh, The Joy of Work, 30 Ways to Fix Your Work Culture and Fall in Love with Your Job Again. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you very much.